to see what God is going to do with the preaching of this message this morning. This passage has had a profound impact on my heart over the last couple of weeks. <clears throat> the simple point of this passage is that there's a, a very clear contrast between human toil and God's provision. And this passage encourages us to rest in God's provision. A couple years ago, as I was entering my last year of graduate studies in seminary, I started the process of looking for a job. And this is something that I had to do. I have to get a job. Um, and I wasn't looking for just any job. I was looking for a job where I could use my gifts, serve the church's needs, and be with a, a session and a pastor that I considered safe and trustworthy. And I went about this in a way that was, quite honestly, trying to control the uncontrollable. And I was filled with anxiety. I knocked on a lot of doors, but those doors were not being opened. I had a lot of conversations, but those conversations were pretty fruitless. Until a very clear series of events led me to a conversation with a guy named Richard Schwartz. And it was nothing other than divine orchestration of his providence that led me to this conversation. And once that conversation started, ever so slightly and ever so slowly, the door to this church and me being called as a pastor here started to open. And I just needed to start walking forward. It was the difference between an emotional restfulness and an emotional anxiety in the way that I went about looking for a job out of my own human toil and anxiety and, and striving and then ultimately resting in how God had provided for me and my family. And ultimately, we, we did come here, and it has been a great fit ever since. This is a wisdom psalm. And as a wisdom psalm, it teaches us something about wisdom in the Christian life. This psalm teaches us that it's utterly foolish to rely on our own human effort and toil and striving because we're powerless. But rather, we can trust and we should trust on God's providence and His goodness to us, and we can rest in that. That's wisdom in the Christian life. I asked my friend Tom Darnell, hey, what do you think of this passage? This is on your quotes and notes. He says, this passage is not about how Christ redeems us, but rather how Christ's redeemed people live. And so the this, this sermon title is Resting in God's Provision. And the one point that I have for us this morning is considering the contrast that this passage shows us between human toil and God's provision. And this passage has four really clear examples of how that plays out. Let me read this passage for us now. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Well, let's pray together. Father, I am truly grateful for your word. I'm, I'm thankful for this passage that teaches my heart 
about who you are and how I can truly trust in you. I, I expect and I do pray that you would open hearts this morning and that you would do great and powerful things through the preaching of this message and the demonstration of who you are. Lord, this morning, I pray that for those who are too comfortable that you would disrupt them greatly. And for those that are, in fact, disrupted, I pray that you'd bring them great comfort. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. So as I said, the first point is the contrast between human toil and God's provision. So the first thing I want you to see about that in verses 1 and 2 throughout the whole passage is that there's this incredible contrast in that this human toil is a picture of vanity. It's a picture of uselessness, a picture of futile effort. The word vain is used three times in the first two verses. That word means useless, vain, futile attempts. And so we need to understand that human toil in all of its facets are utterly useless outside of God's blessing and His provision. Look at verses 1 for me. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The first time we see the word toil is in the Garden of Eden, right after the original sin happens, where this, the curse is put upon the land, and it comes forth with thorns and thistles, and the work of Adam is cursed, and that he will be toiling after the work of his hands. And we, as we just read in Ecclesiastes, there's a very clear way that toilsomeness is this sort of life pursuit outside of God's will that is ultimately futile and, and useless. And, and it, it is so frustrating for us. It's a picture of trying to control the uncontrollable. It's really a picture of an emotional energy that's anxious and relying on self. And so in this passage, we see four clear examples of how this can happen. The first one being building a house. The second one being watching over a city. The, sec the third one being uh, work or provision. The fourth one being bringing forth children. And each one, we see that it's absolutely useless outside of God's conditional blessing upon those things. In the first one, the house. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Well, clearly, you need to actually use a hammer and nails to build a house, but houses fall down. I mean, when we were moving to Clarksville, we looked at one house, and it was really, really cheap for, for the square footage and everything like that. And we came to realize that it actually had foundational damage, a structural problem, and I think since then it's been torn down. You can look at a piece of property, you can buy that property, you can hire a builder, and we have a family in, in, in the room that may be doing just that very soon, and, and I hope the blessing upon that house, but you know what? There's a thing called a sinkhole. There's a thing called a tornado. Back in February, we had some of those hit our community, and it was devastating. Unless the Lord establishes the house, those who build it actually labor in vain. This can also mean this house this home, the, the word itself can actually be something much broader than just the physical structure. And mean, uh, it can mean a whole family. It can mean a dynasty. It can mean an entire nation. But in this case, we should just understand it as a house because it's the most basic elementary way that a man can produce something, to build something. And we need to understand that unless the Lord builds any house, it's not going to stand. Back in Genesis 11, we see the story of the Tower of Babel. And we see a group of people who were completely focused on making a name for themselves and bringing glory to themselves instead of 
making great the name of the Lord. And they sought to do something great. They sought to build this big tower. They sought to build this expansive city. And ultimately, the Lord frustrated the project, confused their language, and ultimately put an end to it. We need to remember that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Second example in this passage, the second part of verse 1, it says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This is an even more clear example of how the conditionality of the Lord's blessing is what upholds the city's safety and security. Throughout the Old Testament, we see repeatedly how God delivers Israel's enemies into their hands. It's never in doubt whether Israel as an army, as a people group, is ever going to win a battle or lose a battle. It's never in doubt. We're usually told pretty square away why and what's going to happen. Now, here in Clarksville, modern times, we may not be worried about foreign people groups crushing down our walls and putting us to the sword, but we do worry about our personal health and our family's safety a lot, don't we? And I think that's the essence of this, is talking about the security and the protection that we seek. Some of the most basic things that we want in life are ultimately under God's sovereign providential care in our lives. No matter how hard we work, no matter how much we care about our nutrition and our exercise, we may be diagnosed with cancer. Our family security, same principle. A couple weeks ago, it was a Tuesday. I took my daughter Eden to the neighborhood playground. And she just bounced in there, and we've done this so many times. And she jumped on the swing, and she has her dad pushing her on the swing. It's a beautiful day, wind in her face. And she did something that she's never done ever before. As I'm pushing her, it's been a couple minutes now, she's swinging higher and higher, higher and higher. I push her, and she lets go with her hands. Let's go. I mean, we've been swinging for months and months. And as I push her, and you know, she's, you know, the swing's coming up like this high. She falls backwards off the back of the swing, moving ever further away from me. And it's like she's a rag doll held motionless with inertia, and her dad's frozen. I can't do anything. I couldn't respond. She's moving backwards towards her neck as she's moving closer to the ground. And slowly but surely, she just crumples to the ground, feet, knees, chest, and her face kind of plants into the soft pebbles. She cries. She's upset. She's scared, but man, she was safe. See, I took my daughter that day on a Tuesday, just a Tuesday. I took her to the playground, full of life, bounding with energy, this beautiful little girl. And I could have taken her away that day, dead and lifeless, because she had a broken neck. But God protected my daughter that day. Unless the Lord watches over the city, those who guard it, guard it in vain. Verse 2. Consider the way that we engage in our work, the way that we try to provide for ourselves and our family. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. We would do well to understand this verse in the context of agriculture and farming. Rising up early, going through the whole day, working hard, going late to rest, 
ultimately in the search of producing something, of causing something to grow, of trying to use our farm to produce food, which it literally produces, but also provision, the thing that we trade with, the thing that we sell, the thing that causes us to have financial prosperity. The farm is the central element of economic life in the Old Testament. And so this is a picture of farming and trying to produce something. And it's saying that no matter how hard you work, work in your hands to the bone. It's utterly futile and worthless, and your efforts are a waste outside of God's blessing. You can go about this and, and just, just work at it so hard, eating the bread of anxious toil, if you will. And yet, outside of God's blessing, it's a waste. And why is that? Well, it, as it turns out, God's the one that causes stuff to grow. You can plant you can even take some water and sprinkle it on the seeds. You can even pull up some weeds. But you can't actually cause anything to grow. And just, this is so much bigger than the farming metaphor or analogy. This is, this is pervasive of all of our lives and all of our work. A businessman, a salesman, you have really no power to execute and accomplish the goals that you set out to. You have no power. Outside of God's blessing, it's futile. And yet we have this beautiful promise at the very end of verse 2 that He, the Lord, gives to His beloved sleep. That the Lord gives to those He loves sleep. In the Bible, sleep and rest are this beautiful picture of how God nurtures His people. I think about holding my son stone and watching him fall asleep in my arms. And he's able to do it with myself and my wife because he knows he's safe. And he sleeps like a baby. Imagine that. He does. He sleeps like a baby because he knows he's safe in our loving care. It's the same here for us. When we are promised this kind of sleep, it's it's a restfulness that is pervading all of our life. It's not just a physical sleep. It's a way of engaging in all of our endeavors of life. In the Bible, the opposite of rest is not work. It's actually restlessness. The opposite of rest in the Bible is not work, but restlessness. And God is inviting us with His promise into a restfulness in all that we do. You know the thing that keeps people up at night most of the time? Worry, anxiety, what are they stewing about? Usually the most basic elements of life. Family security, family health, financial provision. The things that were promised ultimately from Matthew 6. Promised. And yet we worry, we ain't, we're anxious about these things. You know, being able to not go to sleep well at night having an anxiety right before you go to sleep, having your mind race with thoughts, compulsive thoughts, this is one of the real chief signs of having anxiety in your life. Now, lest we just think that we can staple a Bible verse to that and make it go away, some of us actually struggle with real clinical anxiety. And we have room for that here. Some of us really need some mental health medication and some therapy for that, and that's, that's fine. That's something that we would like to help facilitate at this church. But all of us have a spiritual sense of what anxiety can be in our lives when we do not live in a trusting relationship with the Lord and His provision. 
and we rely too much on our self-sufficiency and our human toil. You see? And so, in this, we're invited to a restfulness where we're able to rely on the Lord's provision. What would it be like if we actually believed that? What difference would it make in your life if you actually believed that the Lord was going to provide for you and your needs? I think one result might be that we're able to labor without a sense of toil. It's sort of a foretaste of heaven. Read Isaiah 65. You'll see a beautiful picture of what the heavenly picture of work is. Did you know that we're actually going to be working in heaven? We're not just going to be playing harps floating on clouds. Check out Isaiah 65. Another would just be maybe this, that we're able to plant and trust the Lord with the growth. That may be in your business. That may be actual seeds, if you're a a green thumb kind of person. Maybe you're a farmer. But what about evangelism and discipleship? Perhaps we should just plant the seeds and trust that God's going to do His work to cause those to grow. Imagine a farmer who plants something and then digs up the seed to see if it's actually growing. We would call that man a bad farmer. Yeah? Because he would actually kill it when he's trying to check on it to see if it's living or, or growing. In the same way, we should just plant and trust the Lord with the results. I think this would give us courage to face the day, and ultimately it invites us into a restfulness of all of our life and all of our pursuits. This passage is really neat in the sense that it starts in a really concrete example of a building. And then it moves to something that takes a little bit more mystery of how God protects people groups or protects us in security in our families and our health. That while we have some role to play in that, there's a lot more at play with how the Lord is involved. And then it moves on to farming and, and just the mystery of how life is springing forth out of the ground. Yes, we plant, but the Lord causes the growth. And then it transitions into the most incredible, mysterious example of all, childbirth. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. The word heritage is really conveying the idea of an inheritance. And that all children are a gift from the Lord and that He gives them freely to us. And the word reward is better understood as a gift. So to rephrase this, we might see see this verse like this, that children are a gift from the Lord. Children are a gift from the Lord. Some of us in here today may be struggling with fertility issues. And that the deepest longing of our hearts may be to actually be able to receive a child. And for those of you in here who may be struggling with that, I just want you to know that I don't think that that is something that has been denied you because of your sin or how you're relating to the Lord. I don't think that He's withholding His good blessing and provision of that child in your life because of anything you've done. I would only remind you that in some mysterious way, God is good in bringing glory to Himself, and He works all things for our good. 
verses 4 and 5, it says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now, we're not a bow and arrow people. We would do well to understand this verse like this. Children are like bullets in the gun of a soldier. That's kind of strange, though, when you think about it, isn't it? And yet, think about it like this. A soldier needs a gun. If he's going to have impact in the thing that he's intended to accomplish, he needs some ammunition. He needs some bullets. And blessed is that man who has a fully loaded gun, who can have incredible impact in the world around him, in his battle, in the work of his hands. You see, in this time period, family size was incredibly important. It was incredibly important. The number of children you had had a direct correlation to your wealth potential. It had a direct correlation to your social status and it had a direct correlation to the literal protection that you were able to afford yourself and your family and your property. And this helps us to understand what it says at the very last part of verse 5. It says, He, this man who has plentiful children, shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The gate is sort of the town square, the place where judicial cases were heard in front of elders. So the number of children that could represent this individual showing up in this judicial case, if you will, is going to actually be able to give character witness and prove the social status, prove the economic prosperity of the family, and ultimately achieve justice for the family. Isn't that interesting? Children were so much more valuable truly valuable in this time period than they are today. And yet, yes, children, of course, are a blessing to us and that the Lord gives them. The singular point of this section here, verses 3 through 5, is this, that the Lord provides children as a gift. And that's the same point that is made throughout the entire psalm, that the Lord is providing for His people and that we can rest in His provision. And yet, friends, we do have a role to play, don't we? We have a role to play. A house is not going to happen ex nihilo. We're just not going to pray to the Lord that He would build a house for us and it, it come up out of the dust. A guard is incredibly helpful in watching a city to alert the people that they need to raise up their arms and defend the city. Or for us, that we, me, if my daughter tries to run across Wilma Rudolph at 5 p.m., I would be foolish to just pray that the Lord protect her and not try to grab her. Yes? I have a role to play. In the same way, if you don't go to work, you're not going to have a job. You're not going to get paid. You're not going to be able to provide for your family. And if you seek to have children, there's kind of a collaborative thing that you have to be a part of there with the Lord, isn't there? You see, we have a role to play. This passage is inviting us into engaging in these elements of our life, these incredibly domestic, everyday elements of our lives in a restful way that trust in the Lord's provision and rest in Him in all of those things. If you're a college student about to graduate in May, I think it would be utterly foolish for you to merely, merely pray that the Lord provide you a job. At some point, it might be helpful for you to fill out a resume, submit an application. 
I think it would be utterly foolish of you to think, I've prayed that the Lord's going to give me a job, and I'm just now going to wait on the employers I've never met to knock on my front door and interrupt my Netflixing. I think that would be utterly foolish. You have a role to play. This passage is inviting us in how do we play into that story that God is writing in our lives? What's the emotional energy? How do we trust in the Lord in these things? So how do we do this? Well, I have a couple thoughts. How do we do this? How do we engage in this restful engagement in what God is doing in our lives? Well, first is this, just seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. As we just heard in Matthew 6, the Lord promises to provide all of our basic needs. Those are basic needs. And he, in, he invites us to not have anxiety and rather to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness to orient our entire life around the central fact of who the Lord is and to seek his kingdom. The second would be this, to serve the king. Seek the kingdom, serve the king, serve the Lord. Colossians 3.17 puts it this way, in whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Seek the king, seek the kingdom, and serve the Lord. And finally, just to sort of translate that, what does that mean into our everyday life? How do, we, how do we really do that? I think it's this. Be faithful in what's in front of you. Be faithful in what's in front of you. The Lord gives us His calling most of the time through the circumstances of our life. We ask this question a lot. I wonder what God's will is. What's, what's a calling on my life? Well, brother... It's probably whatever the circumstances of your life dictate. And God would have us to be faithful in whatever is in front of us. And to do that by seeking the kingdom and serving the king himself. You know, preaching is really an interesting thing. Um, because I have no power to accomplish the thing that I seek to accomplish. My goal is that God would be glorified and that lives would be changed. That's my goal. The Lord is going to bring glory to himself. He doesn't really need my help with that, but I do hope that I um, am used in that way. And I seek to have lives changed, but I have no real power in that. And so, depending on how I relate to that, it can either be maddening or liberating. If I'm toiling and striving out of my own flesh to accomplish something in a sermon, it's maddening because I know I have no real impact, no real hope outside of God's provision. And yet it's so liberating for me to know that if I could just be faithful to the passage and do the best I can with the gifts God's given me, if I could just be faithful with what's in front of me, and trust the Lord with the results, maybe lives will be changed. It's, it's beautiful. Friends, this passage invites us to rest in God's provision in all of our lives. And the chief way that we can rest in God's provision is knowing that we are invited into a relationship 
with Jesus that is given to us as a gift. And that nothing we can do, none of our toil, none of our efforts, none of our posturing could ever secure a right relationship with the Lord. Nothing we could do could ever earn it because it's a gift. And as we accept this gift and we live with a relationship with the Lord, this passage invites us to a way of living that's restful, constantly, constantly, forever, resting in the good provision of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this psalm. I thank you for how this psalm has touched my heart. I thank you that this is who you are, that you are a God who provides relationship as a gift with your people, and that you can be trusted every day of our lives. We thank you for this gift, and I pray that this would change lives that those who have never truly trusted in you and had a relationship with you would see the beauty of who you are and what you've done and that they would do that even now. And for those of us who have been walking with you in a relationship for years, I just pray that you would draw them even closer, causing them to truly trust in you in a way that they never have before, resting in your provision. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Our deacons are positioning themselves. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 6, 19-23. 